Well, I'd love you to turn to Galatians chapter 3. Um, Galatians chapter 3, if, you have a, if you'd like a Bible, there are still um, some available at the back. Um, so feel free to run and get one of those um, or find it on your, on your phone. Um, it's great to see you. My name's um, John T. We're going to look at the next chunk of Galatians that we've been working our way through. But I'm very conscious this afternoon that we, we do need God's help. Um, as we look at this part of the Bible together. Um, So we're going to pray, not just because it's a good thing to do, but because we need to. So let's, um, let's pray, and then we'll read. Father, you are worthy to be praised. You really are worthy to be praised. And so we ask this afternoon that you'd help us not to arrogantly come to this word, assuming that we can work it out in our own wisdom. But Holy Spirit, you who inspired Paul to write this down, you who were there as as Paul spoke these words and as they were written down, Holy Spirit, it was you there with Paul, alongside Paul, making these words the word of God. And so, Father, this afternoon, please, with that same spirit, now that was with Paul as this word was written, be with us now as this word is read. Please be with us. Teach us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to go from Galatians chapter 3 and verse 23. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. These are complicated words. And there is a depth here which we are not going to get to the bottom of, which is good news 
because it means we can do this again sometime and look at them again and learn more because that's what the Bible is like. You never really get completely to the bottom of everything that is there. But it's also very simple. And if you're freaked out by the idea of things being complicated, and if you're quite new to all this stuff, let me say it is actually very simple. Here is the simple thing that I want us to cling onto, explore, and then live out. In these verses, Paul tells the story of how you go from being a slave to being a child. That is the story that is true of every single Christian, of every one of God's people. That's what it means to be a Christian. You were a slave, now you're a child. And in these verses, Paul is going to unpack that. So look at verse 7 of chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. So there it is. That's what we're building up towards. And I want to say to you, don't overcomplicate it. Don't overthink it this afternoon. Don't get yourself knotted in so many different trees, that's like so many different metaphors all in one mess, don't get so confused that you lose sight of this fundamental reality, slave to child. If you know Jesus, you are a child of God. It is spectacularly true. And just to fill in a little bit, um, kind of the, the language to help you. We, if you've been around in Galatians, you'll have heard us talk about being a kind of righteousness, being righteous or being justified. Okay, here is another way that Paul is talking about a similar idea. To be righteous is to be a child of God. It's to be part of God's family. It's to belong to God. It's to be someone that God says, they're my child. And this afternoon, we're going to have to try and work out and understand how it is that you go from being a slave to being a child. But before we get to that, I want to say that if that's all we do this afternoon, I think we'll have failed. Because Paul doesn't write this so that we have a nice time looking at each other and going, I'm a child of God. And we all look around each other and go, I'm a child of God. Isn't that nice? Isn't it nice to be a child of God? And then at the end, we, we, we're going to sing rather predictably, I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. We're going to sing. I'm so predictable. But that's what the verse says. So we're going to sing this at the end. Tom, can you turn me down a little bit? I, I'm making myself sorry. It's just me. Um. But if all we do is at the end kind of close our eyes and go, I'm a child of God, I'm a ch isn't this lovely? It's so lovely to be a child of God. We'll have missed the point of why Paul tells us we're a child of God. You see, Paul has got a bigger agenda in Galatians than just making you feel better about yourself. He's got a bigger agenda than just you and your personal relationship with God. 
actually what he's going to say is that that reality of being a slave who's now a child has a radical implication for our relationships with others. So if you look at one other verse, before we dig into it, I'm just trying to show you the highlights of where we're going. If you just look at verse 20, um, 28, verse 28, we need to deal with this in this passage as well, where Paul says, there is neither slave, uh, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And what we've got to do this afternoon is connect those two things, slave to child and one in Christ. We've got to see how being a, a child of God relates to us being one in Christ. And if all we do this afternoon is end up with an individualistic view of me being a child of God, then we fail to understand the oneness in Christ. That's what Paul is really bothered about. That's, the th- that's why he's writing this letter. And that's why it's going to be so relevant and, can I say, actually pretty challenging for us this afternoon. And we talked about this a bit last week, but this idea of oneness in Christ, of being one, is very powerful. Let me try and... um, let me try and show you why in our, in our world. And I, I want to be really careful, okay? I, I want to talk really carefully for a minute about some quite hard things to try and get us to see why this really matters. It is interesting and sad that we live in a culture that often likes to polarize, that, that likes to pull apart. And and weirdly, we seem to be living at a time where that almost seems to happen more. Have you noticed that? It seems to be happening more on a kind of political level. You know, the the sort of we, we seem to be more divided as a culture, more divided as a nation. And it makes you wonder why. Why is it that we pull away from one another? And often the the reasons that we pull away from one another and what you end up with in this polarization, it's often along the lines of power. It's who has power. So in, in our culture, there has been lots of conversations in recent years which I think have been helpful and we need to engage with and we need to listen to and not ignore. Conversations about power and oppression. Conversations about the ways that we have pulled apart from one another. Conversations about injustice that has happened as a result of power dynamics. The struggle for power. But... The interesting thing is that you discover when you read the Bible that you see exactly the same issues happening there. We pull apart. There are those who have power and those who don't, and there's this dynamic that exists between them which can lead to great division. You may say, why am I talking like this? It's because the three pairs that Paul chooses to use, right, when he talks about oneness, He talks about Jew and Gentile, 
slave and free, male and female. They are not randomly picked. They are all relationships where there is a differential of power between two parties. It's not like Paul says, you know, we're all one in Christ. If you're a Spurs fan or an Arsenal fan, we're all one in Christ. Because as far as I can see, some of you may disagree, there's no real power differential between a Spurs fan and an Arsenal fan. You know, it's not an arbitrary difference. You like blue, you like green, but we're all one in Christ. No, that's not what he picks. He picks three examples from his culture where he says there is this pulling apart and this power thing. Now, let me hear, hear me carefully. They're not all the same. They don't work all the same. There are differences, big differences between the difference, the power dynamic between male and female and between slave and free. They're not the same, right? Don't, don't misunderstand. But what is common in all of them is this struggle for power. And interestingly, it's a struggle for power that goes right back to the very beginning of the Bible. So in Genesis chapter 3, when humanity first rejects God, one of the things we're told, one of the results, is this will now be the relationship between male and female. God says um, to the woman, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, when it says your desire, that's not a nice, that's not a nice, oh, that's nice, a desire. You know, if my wife says, I desire, that sounds nice. That's not, it's not that sort of desire. This is a um, a controlling desire. You can ask me how I know that. It's from chapter four. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It, it's, it's, it's a desire, to, it's a desire to, to master. So the, what happens is you have the woman and the man who were created ah, to be one, right? To become one. If the Spice Girls taught us nothing, they taught us that. To become one. And that oneness is the beauty of God's plan and God's design, one. But when sin entered the world, suddenly they pull apart. Now there is a power differential. Now there is a struggle for power. Now the, the woman will seek to master and the man will rule over the woman. And there's a power dynamic going on. And so... Human history can be charted through this power struggle, this power play, this, these divisions that open up. And Paul says it here. And the three particular things he picks on, one is in ethnicities. It will very often be the case that in most societies, one ethnicity will have a power over others. Male and female. In most cultures, it has long been the case that men have power over women. Certainly in the, in, in the, in the days of Paul. And also slaves and masters. But they're, they're social status. So ethnicity, gender, and social status. Here are the three big arenas that Paul's talking about. And he says, this is where culture will pull apart. And we see it happening right before our eyes. 
And this is where all the conversations at the moment about these things and our culture is talking about it. But here's the problem. I don't think we I don't think we know what to do. I'm not convinced that our culture has the tools it needs to sort this and to fix this because as far as I can see, what happens is that the solution seems to be that where you have the powerful and the oppressed, the solution is to redistribute the power. Now that's an oversimplification and I, 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 look, there's loads more that could be said about that. But what Paul says is something completely different. Paul says it's not about a a redistribution of power. Paul says there's something even more radical than that. And that is the obliteration of power struggle completely. The obliteration of power lines of those who lord it over others. Paul says, in God's family, in this church that he's talking about, he's writing to, this is what you're supposed to be. It's not we need to spread the power around a little bit more. It's, no, you need to understand that you're one in Christ. So when God created humanity... In the beginning, between the man and the woman, there was not a power over that was to be exerted. There was oneness. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Now, the brilliant thing, actually, about what Paul talks about, um, oh, there's so much on this, but the brilliant thing about what Paul talks about is this is not a oneness that obliterates the individual, right? It obliterates the power dynamic. It takes away the superior, inferior. It takes away the big and small. It takes away that, but it doesn't destroy who you are. So you don't stop being a man or a woman. You don't stop being a Jew or a Gentile. And actually, and this is slightly more controversial and there's lots more that needs to be said about this, but Paul isn't actually at this point saying you need to stop being a slave or a master. He does say that in other places, and also there's a whole thing about slavery which would need a whole nother sermon. So slavery is an absolute abomination in God's sight. Um, we must be clear about that, but I haven't got time to do all that now. But I hope you can begin to see, I'm, I'm, trying, to, I'm trying to drag you to think about how this applies to our culture. The solution to our culture's big polarization is not that we just tip the tables. The solution to our culture is that we say, one in Christ. That's his big vision. But how? How can we be one in Christ? On what grounds are we one in Christ? Okay, well now we've got to go back to the slave to child. You see, what is it that Paul, because look, normally if I said to you, right, come on, uh, why, should we, why should we be equal before God? Right, think about it in your minds now, in fact, in case you've fallen asleep. Imagine I, as you walked in today, I said, I'm just doing a little survey. On what basis should we uh, all be one? On what basis should we treat one another with fairness? I think most of us instinctively would say, 
image of God. Sorry if that wasn't what you're thinking of, but you know. We're all created in the image of God. I'm created in the image of God. Joe's created in the image of God. Therefore, I mean, oh, and all of you, sorry, that wasn't just, <laughs> it's not just me, Joe, there's others here. I appreciate that, sorry. But image of God is a powerful truth, right? We're all created in the image of God, and therefore we're all equal. I'm not better than you, we're all in the image of God. Brilliant, foundational Christian doctrine which has shaped our world. And Tom Holland's written some great stuff about this to show this is where all of our equal rights all comes from the Bible. But Paul doesn't go for the image of God here. He says one in Christ rests on the fact that you were all slaves and you are all now children. In other words, you share the same story. That's what Paul's arguing. And because you share the same story, you have to treat one another as one. How dare you think that some of you are more important than others? Just imagine one day if one of my children, I won't say which one, came to breakfast and said, I've been thinking overnight, and it's dawned on me that I am the best of the three Alcock children, and therefore I deserve to be treated slightly differently. That wouldn't last long, right? It wouldn't be difficult to say, no, actually. That's not to say that the children are all the same. They're not. But they, all, they, they are absolutely all equal. And the day one of them thinks that they are going to be more superior than the others is the day I have to remind them of their story. Remember where you came from. And that's what Paul is doing here. You're all children of God. So let's get into that theme. Everyone happy? Is everyone following what we're doing? Great. Let's get into this theme um, of being one, uh, but being children of God. Um, now, we're going to have to do a bit of, um, not, not acting, but you're going to have to do a bit of imagination with me, all right? Because some people reading this in the early church in Galatia would have heard this and would have been absolutely horrified. They would not have gone, I'm a child of God. I was a slave, but now I'm a child of God. Some people would have been absolutely horrified. Others would have been absolutely blown away and gobsmacked by this truth. Why? Because of the power differential. <laughs> because in Galatians, they've pulled apart. Now, look, remember... Um, I'm using this pulling apart because remember what we've already seen back in chapter 2 of Galatians. If you weren't here, you missed it. But if remember what we saw in chapter 2, when even Peter, the apostle Peter, who was happily having a meal with the Gentiles, happily eating with everybody in the church, all of the different nations, all the different um, ethnicities, happily eating a meal, then suddenly some people come and say, oh, no, you shouldn't be eating with them because we're different. We're, we're more important. And Peter began to draw back and separate himself. He began to stop eating with the Gentiles as he pulled back 
Why? Because he thought, it, he thought he was more important. Because they got into this mindset that there's this group that matter more, and now they're beginning to pull away. A group who have power and a group who don't. You can always tell who has power by the ones who get to call the shots, right? You can't imagine the Gentiles turning around to the Jews in Galatia going, actually, we've got some ideas. Can we make some suggestions? No, the Gentiles are the ones who are constantly told, no, you need to do it like this, you need to do it like this, you need to do it like this. And so they were pulling back. And so if you think that you're, the, you're it, if you think you're the superior ones, this is going to be quite hard to hear. But if you're one of the ones who identifies perhaps as the, the lesser and feels that lesserness, well, then this is just going to be unbelievable. So let's do that, right? Let's, let's, pretend we're, let's start by pretending that we're sort of the in crowd. Um, we, we think we're basically it, there are some people who've joined our church, but we're not really sure about them. Uh, they seem uh, not convinced really about them, a bit suspicious of them, and we're trying to persuade them to become more like us. You should get your hair cut like us. Uh, come on, you should come and be like us. It's a bad example. Come and, ha- come and be like us. Right, that is essentially how the Jewish Christians were behaving Right, listen to what Paul says. Let's read this, um, applying it to the, the, those who were Jewish from background. Right, verse, 20, uh, verse 23. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. Listen, you, you uh, Jews... This was your situation before Jesus came, before Christ came. You were locked up under the law, held in custody under the law. That is slavery language, right? If you are under something, that is to be a slave. If you are locked up, that is not to be free, right? Hmm, Obvious. And Paul says to them, this was what you were like. He's been making this argument. We saw lots of this last week. The law which God gave to his people, which they were so proud of, which they thought, this is, look at us, we've got this. Actually, Paul says to them, no, that was ne- it was given to, you're locked up there. Look at verse 24. The law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. So he's saying, before Christ came, before this moment when Christ appeared, you were actually slaves. And you were slaves under the law of God. The law which is good, but Locks you up if you can't keep it. And so they had this wonderful law, and it was good, but actually it just held them. And because of the law, they were in big trouble. 
They were not free. Now, you have to understand, actually, how hard that is to hear. And in case you think this is just um, Paul having a bit of a go, Jesus said exactly the same thing. When Jesus spoke to some of the um, Jewish leaders of his day, um, he spoke to them in the same language. He spoke to them about slavery. And, oh, I'm on the wrong page. Here we go. And Jesus said to them, <laughs> I love this, right? He said to the Jewish leaders, if you hold to, this is John 8, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What did they answer him? We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. We're not slaves. How dare you? How can you say that we shall be set free? And Jesus says, no, you are slaves. You are slaves. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And so firstly, it brings the, those, those people who pride themselves on their ethnicity, their Jewish ancestry, it brings them down and says, no, you were slaves under the law. He says exactly the same thing in chapter 4 of Galatians. Let's keep going in this chapter 4. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So he says, look, it's like you were underage. And so there were some rules put in place. And that law, it was, it was it is a guardian. It's quite difficult to translate that word. Probably means babysitter. Anyone remember a babysitter? Anyone had fun babysitters? Some people had fun. First time we ever tried baby left Josiah with a babysitter. Um, he's our eldest. We left him with a guy who had not a clue, it turns out. And um, we got back. We got back about half ten from a lovely evening. And uh, they were sat on the sofa together watching Bob the Builder. We're like, it's half past ten. What are you doing? And Josiah just looked at us and gave us this massive smile. <laughs> it's like, he hasn't got a clue what he's doing. <laughs> But actually, the idea here is that, you, that there's a babysitter put in place, a guardian, someone who controls you, someone who stops you. So the law is stopping you doing everything you want to do. It, it, it controls, it constrains you. A babysitter is supposed to say, when you say, can I watch Bob the Builder? The babysitter's supposed to say, no, it's bedtime. Oh, please. No, it's bedtime. And then the babysitter's supposed to lock you up <laughs> in your... That's a joke. But that sort of... That's the sort of, that's the language, right? Locked up. That was the law. But can you imagine if I phoned my mate Rob and said, Rob, you know you came and babysat like 18 years ago. We're going out again uh, tonight. Could you come over and babysit? That's ridiculous. Our eldest son's now 18. He's, he's mature. He's grown up. He's old. <laughs> I, 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 I was going to tell you something. Anyway, um, he, I'll, I'll quickly tell you, right. He's, he's away this weekend. Sorry, he won't mind. He's away this weekend. He's staying in a hotel and, um, with another church on their church weekend away. And I got a message from the vicar of the church saying, Josiah turned up at breakfast and said, none of the lights in my room work. Um, I had to have a shower by torchlight. <laughs> <laughs> 
And the, <laughs> and the vicar said, did you put the little card in the slot? And he went, no. My parents normally sort that out. So um, top marks to him. Anyway, so at some point, though, you come of age, right? At some point, you mature. You, you move past. And Paul is saying, before Christ came, you were, you were held as a babysitter under, under, under the law. It constrained you. It locked you up. You were a slave. And they thought they were free. They thought they were so free. But Paul says you weren't. But what he does so brilliantly in, in this section, oh, Paul is such a genius. As he writes this, what he does so brilliantly is he then weaves the Gentile story in as well. And you, you find yourself, and it's really brain-stretching, you find yourself reading it going, who are you talking about? Are you talking about the Jews or the Gentiles here? Because he keeps going, we were this, we were this, you were, you were this, we were this. And actually, I think what he's doing is he's just weaving the two stories together to say this story of slavery, you were slaves unto the Lord, Jews, it was your babysitter. It constrained you until Christ came. But then suddenly he's talking about the Gentiles. He says, and your story too is one of slavery. You were a slave. But in a different way. So look at, um, so look at verse 3 of chapter 4. So also, when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Why does he suddenly say that? Why not the law? He's been saying the law all the way through. I think it's because what he's doing is he's pulling now the Gentiles in and saying the slavery of the, the Jews under the law is also the slavery that all of humanity has been under. We're not all under the law like the Jews were. We don't all have, we, we didn't all have the Ten Commandments, but we were all in slavery to the elemental spiritual forces. I think it means the basic first principles of this world. You know what is right and wrong. It's, wit, it's written into your heart. When Josiah looked at me as a two-year-old, having watched Bob the Builder, he knew that it was wrong. He didn't need a law to tell him that. And so whether you are a Jew under slavery of the law, or whether you're a Gentile under the slavery to the elemental, the basic principles of this world, the first principles, you're all slaves. It's your common story. So don't you dare start thinking that some of you are better than others, because you were all the same. Some under the law, some under the elemental spiritual forces. We'll see some more about this next week. So what did God do? We'll have a look at verse 4. But when the set time had fully come, right, this is breathtaking. If you've fallen asleep, please wake up with this. When the set time had fully come, at just the right moment in world history, when God determined it's now, now is the moment. There's this moment, this event that happens. God sent his son. God sent his son. Sent his son what? To do what? Well, sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Look, 
Here is God, eternal, uncreated, awesome, free, utterly free. And God sent his son to become one of us, to be born of a woman. Right? That, that just means human, right? That's all of us, okay? And so Jesus, that God sends his son to become a tiny little fetus in the mother's womb and to grow and to be born into this world. And you notice, not just to be born and run around and have a happy time being free, but to be born under law. Look, come on, right? God, awesome, big, gives his law and says, this is how I want you to live. He's not under law. He's free. He's above the law. And yet God chooses to come and place himself under law, to become a slave of law. So that Jesus, as he grows up, he keeps the laws of God. He keeps it perfectly. But now look at the next phrase. God sent his son, born of a woman, to be human, born under law, to be a slave. Why? To redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Why is it that God did this? Why is it that Jesus was born of a woman, born under law? It was so that he could take hold of you. Whether you're a Jew under the slavery of the law, or whether you're a Gentile under the slavery to the elemental spiritual forces, that law, it doesn't really matter who you are because you're all slaves. Jesus came to take hold of you and to set you free. You could never keep the law. You could never keep God's law. You could never keep the moral law. You could never keep the law. And if you don't believe me, try. Just try. For a week, try. You can't do it. Because all of us struggle for power, like we saw in Genesis 3. And so all of us live under the condemnation of the law. We are trapped, held hostage by the law until Jesus smashes his way into our place of slavery. He keeps the law perfectly. He does it right. And then Jesus gives himself on a cross to die. Why? Because he dies under the law, under the curse of the laws. Galatians 3. And as Jesus dies, the curse that should fall on me falls on him. He fulfills the law on my behalf so that he could grab me and take me out. And take me where? To adoption, to sonship. To make me God's child. He doesn't set you free and then go, right, off you go. You can run along now. He sets you free so that you can be his child. And then he sends the spirit, his precious spirit, so that you would know you're his child, so that you can cry out, Abba, Father. He gives you the status of child. He gives you the spirit so that you might know and experience your, chi your childliness. He gives it all to you. And just before I, I, I land this, please notice when he calls you a child, he's not calling you an under 18-year-old. 
you're his child, that doesn't mean you're a baby. You're an adult child because you have received the inheritance. Do you see that? When we were underage, we were slaves, but now you're 18. You've received. So you're God's child, not in the sort of, um, I'm a three-year-old and I just sit on my daddy's lap. You're a child in the sense that God says, you're mine, you're my heir, and I've poured all of my blessings on you. To be a child of God means you are his heir. It means you're part of the great story of Abraham that we saw last week. Abraham's seed. Look, we have, oh man, there's so much more in this passage, but I need to stop because we need to finish. But I do just want to say a few things to challenge us to live, to see why this matters. If we're right that what Paul is talking about here is is the great solution our culture needs in its power struggle, that means that the church should be at the forefront should be the voice in the world that speaks most clearly and passionately where there is injustice and where there is power. That should be the church's voice. And the church at its best is a prophetic voice into that situation. But honestly, we're not. And we haven't been. It was Martin Luther King who said, 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. That's sobering, right? It is in the church where we are most segregated. That should bother us. I think that should make us weep. I think that should make us lament. I think we should see the ways that we have failed to do this, the ways that we have pulled apart from one another. I think that we should be bothered about that because we're all children of God if we belong to Christ. We have not done this well. So I I want to encourage us to be people who lament, who say sorry, who look into our own hearts, Look, there's so much talk at the moment. As soon as you mention this stuff, people start saying, oh, you're woke or you're this or you're this. We're not talking about being woke. We're talking about saying Jesus' vision for his church is that we'd be one. And we're not. So we should lament. Then we should pray. God, please teach us, show us, help us, change us. Please change us, Father. And then we should move. Move towards. If pulling apart is the great problem, then the solution is to move towards. Who are the people who share your story? Move towards them. It might be within our church, but it might be across our capital city. Who are the people that we move towards? And then, God willing, it might be that we could shine in such a way that the world sees and says, that That's what we're supposed to be. That's what it's supposed to be. Dear church family, uh, this has weighed heavily on me this week. Because to be a child of God is the most precious thing in all the universe. But it must 
It must change us. It must. And it must lead us to this radical oneness in Christ. So where can you move towards this week? Are there churches that you could go and visit? Are there people that you go and look, go and see what's going on? Go and explore what's happening in our great city. So many people who love Jesus, who are doing great things, and we don't even know about each other because we're so segregated. And you may say, oh, it's hopeless, though. We're never going to get anywhere. We're such a, you know, we're, you know, we're this culture and they're this culture. But we could do something, right? <laughs> if we all made one step, we'd get somewhere. I think we need to do this because it just can't be right that we who share the same story are so dislocated from one another. So why don't we pray? And then we're going to sing. Father, we're sorry where we have pulled away where we have sought to hold on to power, where we've sought to hold on to privilege, where we've sought to be superior. Father, thank you for this stunning vision. And Lord, we pray in these moments that your spirit would stir us to see how this should change us. Lord, that we would see we are children of God and therefore we're one in Christ. And that that unity would be so radically expressed, Lord, within our church family, but across, across this city, across this world, Lord, please unite your church, unite, unite your children, and let us be people who move so that the world might know that you, you, God, are the one true Lord of this world. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.